Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and these are the first-hand accounts of some of the greatest players of all time and the stories of those who played with and against them. These conversations go back as far as 20 years, while some of the previous episodes and episodes to come were recorded as little as months ago. For those of you who are new to Hardball, thanks for finding us. And if you can, please spread the word to as many baseball fans as you can, history fans as well, If you believe the social aspects of the game certainly coincided with the 20th century and beyond, whether through social media or just texting a friend, it's much appreciated as this whole thing is as grassroots as it gets. Would also appreciate if you enjoy what you hear, perhaps taking a few minutes to rate and review. If you listen on Apple, I'm told by those who know these things that that also helps get the word out. If you send me a note saying you did so, I'd like to thank you personally. I'm on Twitter at Chris Domino, D-I-M-I-N-O, same as Facebook. And I promise in 2021, I'm going to get interactive on Instagram with stories in between episodes and some photos I think you guys will enjoy. I'm also going to be offering up some things this year, including getting to ask a few questions for upcoming guests as I am scheduling as we speak. So why spend the time listening to this episode and perhaps going back to hear others? Well, first and foremost, and all of it is encompassed in this. I never thought of these as interviews. I don't even like the word. These are conversations, not Q&As, not depositions. And the room was built upon respect of the players, the moments, the teammates, and most importantly, the game. If you look at the list of the first 25 episodes, you will see Hall of Famers littered throughout, Musial, Kaline, Morgan, and more. But you will also find players like today's guests, truly part of baseball's most important and memorable moments, teammates whose stories they share, and most importantly, firsthand accounts that need to be told and heard before the stories get lost forever. In a year where we lost seven, seven Hall of Famers, now more than ever there is a need to document the game's history. And while the written word can conjure up the emotion of a story, I've always believed that the spoken word paints an even clearer picture. As you hear the excitement or despair, humility or bravado, and most importantly the actual transporting of a player back to that time, that game, that moment, for some like today's guest more than 60 years ago to relive with us, for us, something that still matters and goes beyond the box score. Last thing, I have found that so many of these men not only deserve the time to be heard, but want to be. They want other stories told every bit as much as their own. Today we welcome in a man I've gotten to know over these 20 years, conversations recorded, but also just quick hellos to let him know that I, along with other baseball fans, are still thinking about him. Carl Erskine pitched for the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1948 until they moved west at the end of the 57 season. He pitched sparingly in Los Angeles in 58 and 59, 
and stepped away from the game before the Dodgers needed to have that conversation with him in June of 59. He knew. It's part of what made him different. It's also interesting that Oisk was one of the first nicknames ever given strictly to a Brooklyn guy, and boy, did it fit. Campy, Jackie, Pee Wee, Duke, Gill, all the names that you remember, but Oisk was Brooklyn's own, and from a kid from Indiana, that was special. I grew up in a Dodger house, a Brooklyn Dodger house, a team that left New York six years before I was actually born, and I know more about them bums than most, and certainly most my age. Having a chance to speak to Clem Labine, Johnny Padres, Norm Sherry, of course Duke Snyder, Rachel Robinson, Roger Craig, and today Carl has been more than a thrill. To recount with them the fact that my parents dated at Ebbets Field and how this team helped formulate my love for the game without ever seeing them play has hopefully let them know how much their time meant to me. Carl Erskine saw it all for a decade plus. He wrote two books, What I Learned from Jackie Robinson, A Teammate's Reflections on and Off the Field, and Carl Erskine, Tales from the Dodger Dugout, Extra Innings. And today you will hear how he made his way to Brooklyn, the playoff chases, the shortcomings of championships lost, his Hall of Fame teammates and others who played a role in the Dodgers becoming one of the most beloved teams of all time, watching a wrecking ball in the middle of Brooklyn change the landscape of the game forever. And of course, 1955, the year that wait till next year became the we-don't-have-to-wait-anymore season for the ages. We talk of no-hitters and, of course, those he played against, including perhaps the greatest generation of players who bridged the 40s to the 60s. And I'll leave you with this. Carl Erskine won 122 games and two more in the World Series. He had arm trouble that limited at times what he was capable of doing big picture, but it was a baseball life well-lived. But it doesn't come close to what many have said about him during and after his career. A finer man would be hard to find. Those are quotes. And that is the measure of his life more than what he did on the field. Here you go. Hardball Podcast, Episode 26, Mr. Carl Erskine. Erskine winds, delivers. Swing and a miss as he went after that overhand fastball, and he didn't get around in time. Mickey Mantle, 0-2. Took him out. Two men have been retired on strikes four times in a row today. Joe Collins and Mickey Mantle. Uh, Mr. Erskine is flirting with the history books. And two, Erskine Wines delivers. He struck it out! Carl Erskine has set a new all-time World Series record. He has struck out 14 men. And to a man, woman, and child, they're up on their feet out here in Flatbush. Johnny Wise went down on an inside wicked curveball. Well, I've had the honor and pleasure to speak to this man on a few occasions, and he's not only one of the last links to Brooklyn baseball, but one of the last links to three teams in New York City, day games, trains, not airplanes. Uh, he has seen a lot and played with some of the best to ever play, certainly played against the same in both Brooklyn and Los Angeles. Mr. Carl Erskine joins us today on Hardball. Mr. Erskine, thanks very much for your time. How are you, sir? Yeah, well, you know what? I'm very pleased to talk to you, and that's uh, always a... Uh, World Series time, always get an itch for that. I'd imagine you do. I, You know, it's really interesting. You're 21 years old when you come up to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, had you, I don't want to say, had you been to the big city before? What was your situation when you find out that, A, you're going actually up to Brooklyn and the magnitude of New York City and Brooklyn Dodger baseball and everything that sort of comes with baseball in the 1940s? Well, you know, actually, when I was in high school, the Dodgers scouted me, and uh, as soon as I graduated, they invited me to come to Ebbets Field and work out for a week. So you might say the Dodgers put the hooks in me right there. I, <laughs> I was never going to play for anybody else after that experience. And so 
New York was big compared to my hometown of Anderson, Indiana, which is a little burg up in the middle of the state of Indiana. But uh, it was a experience, exciting, and baseball had grabbed me when I was nine years old, and so I loved the game and. Uh, to get a chance to go to New York to play the biggest stage in the world, really. Uh, that was beyond my wildest dreams. It's really interesting. When you say it grabbed you, I'm assuming it's the radio, maybe it's newspapers and box scores. Was it Chicago or was it St. Louis? Well, mostly it was Chicago because uh, my mother and dad were big Chicago Cub fans. But we near, we lived about... Uh, Oh, I'd say it's a little over 100 miles from my hometown, uh, close to Indianapolis, to Cincinnati. So we used to go to see the games in Cincinnati. and uh, uh, But we'd always go when the Cubs were there. So <laughs> so my parents, I know they didn't hardly know how to handle me being a Dodger <laughs> when, when we uh, played the Cubs. They didn't know uh, radio games in those days. And... Uh, the radio was on a little louder when the Cubs were playing, so you know, my mother and dad had to make a big adjustment. Were your parents first-generation Americans? Yes, oh, yes. No, no, they, you're talking about, yeah. My family came from Scotland back in the late 17, early 1800s. So, uh, yeah, well, they were, uh, my mother was a farm girl. My dad uh, uh, was a manager of a grocery store. So here's here's why I ask. There are players of your generation who had immigrant parents, and the idea of playing baseball for a living when maybe the, the family wanted you to go to college, certainly finish high school, it really is sort of an interesting dynamic when the opportunity comes to play professional baseball because in some families, thank goodness maybe your, your, your parents had a Chicago Cup background or a baseball background because guys have told me that it was a really interesting dynamic when you're trying to explain, no, no, they're going to, pay me to go play baseball, and then I'm hoping to make the major leagues. It doesn't sound like that was your situation, but it's still sort of, I'm assuming, a risky proposition when you send your recent high school graduate out into the world to try to make this as a, as a living. Yes, but you're probably, Keith, I'm close to being 93 years old in December, so in my era, it was right after the Great Depression, and um, yes, uh, my two older brothers dropped out of school to go to work when they were 16, mm -hmm. so I graduated from high school, but the, the, the scouts had been coming to see me pitch during my high school years, and uh, my dad was very familiar with some of the scouts who talked to us over time. And then uh, uh, Uncle Sam intervened, and as soon as I graduated, I was drafted into the Navy. So I had to go off to the Navy for a couple of years. But in the meantime, Mr. Ricky kept in touch with me, and at the All-Star Game in 1946, he came to Boston, where I was stationed in the Boston Navy Yard, and uh, invited my parents, and he signed me to my first contract in 1946, the night before uh, the 46 All-Star Game, wow. in, in the Kenmore Hotel in Boston. So, what, what kind? Of, do you remember the negotiation? Was it something your dad handled? Were you even in the room when all of that went on? Oh, 
all know, we were all together, my mother and dad, Mr. Ricky and, and myself. Uh, the Braves in Boston, where I was mentioned I was stationed, mm-hmm. um, I got hooked up with the Braves, and I was throwing batting practice for the Braves, and the Braves were trying to sign me. They really put the heat on me, and I told them I couldn't sign. I was only 19, and in those days, you had to be 21 mm-hmm. to sign a contract. And they said, well, okay, we're going to we're going to have to get your parents uh, up here and get you signed. So I called Mr. Ricky, and I said, Mr. Ricky, they're trying to put the pen in my hand to sign me. You better get my parents up here quick. And and he said, I will do it. And so uh, Mr. Ricky came to the All-Star game anyway. But uh, the night before, we sat in the, his suite in the Kenmore Hotel, and he said, I understand, son, uh, that the Braves are trying to sign you. And uh, I said, yes, that's true. He said, I didn't offer you some money. And I said, yes, they did. And, in fact, they'd offer me a $2,500 bonus to sign. In those days, nobody got cash money for signing. If you were a superstar, you might get an automobile, which was a Ford or a Chevy for 750 bucks. And But nobody got real cash money. And he said, uh, well, I, I know the Braves offers you some money. Uh, how much do you want? <laughs> now, I'm a 19-year-old uh, <laughs> dealing with big money, and uh, my my dad worked at the General Motors plant eventually, and he probably made about 2500 a year. So I said to Mr. Ricky, uh, how about... How about thirty five hundred? <laughs> I said, How about three thousand? And he said, Well, son, why don't we just make it thirty five hundred? Now I figured Mr. Ricky was real tight with the money. He figured he knew he knew that the Braves had offered me twenty five hundred and he I don't think he had the heart to beat him five hundred dollars. So he said, Let's let's make it thirty five hundred. So I did sign f- for a bonus which was unusual. And then a couple of weeks later, I got discharged from the Navy and went out to play uh, in Danville, Illinois, which was a Dodger affiliate um, in a Class B in those days. And after I finished the season, it was about a month left of the season when I uh, got discharged. So uh, when I finished that month with uh, the Dodger affiliate in Danville, Illinois, I got a call from the commissioner of baseball. He was in Cincinnati uh, at that time, and and, uh, he called me, and he said, I want you and your father in my office next Tuesday at 10 o'clock. We had no idea what was going on, so my dad laid off work. We drove to Cincinnati, and uh, Happy Chandler was the Mm -hmm. commissioner. And uh, he said, uh, son, the Dodgers signed you uh, against a directive of mine uh, that nobody can sign a player that's still in the military until they're discharged. And the Dodgers signed you before you were discharged. And the Braves have blown the whistle. (laughs) So he said, you're a free agent. But because of the ambiguity in my directive, uh, I'm not going to bar the Dodgers from resigning. So you can sign with anybody you want. And I said, how about the the money that I got? said, that's yours to keep, whatever you want to do. You're a free agent. So I said to Mr. Ricky a day or two later, uh, Mr. Ricky, I've been offered now the Phillies, offered me 10,000, the Red Sox offered me 10,000. But 
I, I will. I want to play for the Dodgers. If you uh, if you give me another five thousand, I'll sign with the Dodgers. <laughs> so, so the funny thing about that, I got two bonuses out of Mr. Ricky, who was really tight with the money. And um, I pitched a no hitter against the Giants and Dizzy Dean. In those days, you may have heard of Dizzy Dean sure. as a broadcaster. Yep. He was a he was a loose cannon as a broadcaster. But he said, "Son, who signed you?" And I said. Uh, uh, Branch Rickey, cheapest man ever lived. He said. And I said, <laughs> he said I played for him in St. Louis, and I know how cheap he is. And he, he I said, well, Mr. Rickey gave me two bonuses, and I told him a quick story. And he turned to the, uh, he turned to camera and he said, folks, I want this, I want you to know this boy right here deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, <laughs> not because he pitched on no hitters. He got two bonuses out of Branch Rickey. <laughs> So you know, that, was, you were, that was the end of the interview. You were 30 years ahead of your time as a free agent. Nobody even knew what that was, and you found out in the 40s. You know, you, well, you, nobody got money in those days. It was yeah. rare to get a, a cash bonus. But Mr. I learned I learned later, Mr. Ricky uh, had a chief scout named Clyde Sukaforth. Yep. And uh, Clyde Sukaforth told me uh, when, the, when when the commissioner cut you loose, uh, Mr. Ricky told us. Uh, get that boy in here and uh, go as high as you have to to get him. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you must have had some arm as a 19-year-old. Here's the other thing. I have quoted you quite a bit when I've spoken to players, and I still do it when I talk to current players in, in my, my regular day job. You told me a story a number of years ago about how many different teams the Dodgers had in their minor leagues. Oh, yeah, I was big. Uh, 26 farm teams, and uh, they in those days they classified the minor leagues differently. Uh, the top uh, was AAA, the same as today. Mm-hmm. And then it was AA and A, and then on down through the alphabet to, cl- to Class D was the lowest on the, the ladder to get, to get up to the top. But uh, I started in Class B, which was two notches from the bottom, and then I was only in the minor leagues a year and a half, and Mr. Ricky brought me to the Dodgers. And I didn't realize at the time, but my first spring training, I went and I, I found out there were 200 pitchers in the Dodger chain. 200 pitchers. I mean, young guys, hard throwers. And I, how am I ever going to beat these guys out? But... Mr. Ricky, uh, I won 22 games in uh, Danville my first year. Mm-hmm. Then he sent me to a winter league in Havana, and I, I was uh, I pitched about uh, probably a couple hundred innings in that winter league. And uh, then he brought, uh, went to spring training, and he moved me up to Double A at Fort Worth, Texas, and I was 15 and two, I think, at uh, mid July. And DeRocher was managing the Dodgers. He was hurting for starting pitchers, and he's trying to get Mr. Ricky to bring me up. And he told him he's too green. He hadn't been the he's only had a, one year and a half in the minors. And eventually, he got Bert Schotten, who later became a manager. But he was a he was one of the scouts that was with me in Fort Worth. And he told Mr. Ricky, I think he's ready. And so he finally brought me up uh, July 25th, 
1948. So I want to ask that first day, but I do want to ask, were your parents, what's that phone call like to your parents to say that I, I'm, go, I'm going to go play for the Brooklyn Dodgers? Oh, yeah. Well, it was one of the most uh, unbelievable. It was beyond fantasy to think I was going to go to the big leagues. And um, I was actually 21 when I went to the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I baseball had been in my head since I was nine years old. And playing in the big leagues was beyond imagination. So it was almost unbelievable to think. And I thought to myself, you know, I always wanted that tag on my name. He played in the majors. And, you know, I mean, just to have that tag, it was something, a dream of a little boy. And, uh, and it would really happen. It was almost hard to me to believe. I went to Brooklyn, and I asked—I didn't have any money uh, to live in a big hotel. So I asked somebody, where's the YMCA? Is there a YMCA in Brooklyn? They said, yeah, the Hanson Place YMCA is one of the largest in the world. And I'd always hung around the Y as a kid, learned to swim there and uh, activities at the Y. I went to camp and all that stuff. And so my first room in Brooklyn was a a room, second floor, I had a cot, and everything else was down the hall. (laughs) Was there a dress code? Because here's the other thing, and I mean players very recently have told me, uh, Billy Wagner, Tim Hudson, guys who played, you know, not that long ago when they first came up, they said, I didn't have a suit. I didn't have anything. No, I was in that class. Yeah, it was all new to me. And uh, the only thing is, when I got discharged from the Navy, we got a, we got a, uh, what they call that, we got a, a little money at the end uh, of our tour of duty. And I remember t- going into the tailor shop. I think I spent the whole thing uh, buying new, uh, suits and clothes to, <laughs> to wear when I became a big legger. Yeah. So who was the... Um the veterans on that team, because that team is going to become, it's one of the most famous teams in sports history, the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And certainly the World Series changed a little bit. But was there a veteran or two who took you under the wing? Because I know usually what happens is a guy's going to go to the bullpen and the everyday players don't get a chance to hit. Um, you know, if you're the second guy, uh, well, BP is not going to be for you today. Were there a couple yeah, of right. veterans who helped take care of you? Yeah, there was there was uh, more than one. Uh, Hugh Casey was a big, uh, hard-throwing right-handed pitcher who'd already played a lot of years in the big leagues. When I joined the Dodgers uh, in Pittsburgh, actually mid-season, I was in the outfield shagging fly balls, and he came over and introduced himself and said, "Welcome to the big leagues, son. Can I give you some advice?" I said, boy, yes, I'll take it. He said, well, there's uh, there's some things that you can't change. You can't change the weather on the day you're pitching, the park you're pitching in. You can't change the umpires. This is what pitchers all worry about. Forget it. You can't do anything about it. Worry on the things you have control over. Get your curveball over the plate. Get your fastball down, and you'll win some games. Well, that was great advice because uh, – and he also said – the good hitters in this league hit 330 or 40 every year. I've never seen you throw a pitch, but I can tell you right now they're going to hit you just like they hit the rest of us. <laughs> so he was talking about Stan Musial and some of those great hitters. Well, he said, here's my advice. Bear down on the two or three hitters ahead of that good hitter. 
keep him off the base. And when a guy that's going to hit 330, when he hits you like he hit the rest of us, there won't be anybody to score. And so bear down on the guys ahead of the good hitter. That was another great advice to me. Yeah, and, and a lot of guys have said, hey, you know what, there wasn't a veteran like that. Or they, you know, you're in a different place. You're trying to take somebody's job, and, and these are grown men with families. And there is a lot of that that does come into play. Um, everybody's on a, Yeah, everybody's on a one-year contract. And as you said, there's to, they, they keep signing guys to come replace you. That's, that's the business of the game. That's right. And uh, I always said it was harder to get to big leagues, but it was much harder <laughs> to stay there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. To this day, it's it's the same old thing. Now, you played, obviously, with some iconic Hall of Fame-type players, uh, beyond famous players, some who should be in the Hall of Fame, like Gil Hodges. D- do you remember sort of the, um, I don't know, you, you, you have to have a little moment when you prove you can play. You want to prove it to yourself, and you certainly have to prove it to your teammates. Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson, uh, Duke comes along, Gil Hodges. I mean, it is a litany of really good players, and you guys become a team that not only go to the World Series a few times, but thank God, uh, again, as a as a kid who was born in Brooklyn and parents who were big Brooklyn Dodger fans, thank God 1955 happened. But do you, th- that whole thing of that group of players, if, if I don't ask you individually, if I ask collectively as a sum, how would you describe that group that you played with for a good 10-year period? Well, of course, I pitched a Campanella for probably 1,000, 1,200 innings. Uh, what a player he was. And... He could have been a manager. Uh, he, he had all the gifts of knowing the game. Could have been a manager. Gil Hodges was a manager. Jackie Robinson could have been a manager. Pee Wee Reese could have been a manager. So when I stood on the mound and I'm surrounded by these guys, I'm saying to myself, you know, how lucky can you be to be pitching for this team instead of against them? And so my, my career was enhanced. Because this team scored runs, a pitcher's got to have runs. This team was a defensive team. When a double play was made, it made both ends of it every time. And so I was fortunate to pitch for one of the best offensive teams and defensive teams. And, of course, playing on the big stage in New York, uh, that, that made it all even better. But you be, we became we were all young guys. Uh, Pee Wee was already there. Hodges had uh, was already there before the war, World War II, and Frillo. Those mm-hmm. three were were there when I got there. But then Mr. Ricky began to build on this uh, team around Jackie, and that that's the team that became known as the Boys of Summer. And uh, it was one of the great teams and had great personalities uh, on it. And uh, men of character. Uh, we raised our kids together and uh, spent the off days uh, picnicking and all that with with families. So we're very cle- a very close team, and I know a lot of teams uh, say it's like family, but we did have a bonding that was uh, tremendous, and Mr. Ricky was kind of the centerpiece with that, and uh, so I I think Mr. Ricky had more influence from for the good in me than my own father did. Uh, at least I'd put my father first, but Mr. Ricky second. When you get to, because the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, it's only one World Series there in, in the entirety of the organization's time in Brooklyn. When you 
when you get to the World Series, and there it is, the New York Yankees, and it's the not only the crosstown rival, but it's the New York Yankees. Can I ask, do you remember what it's like to walk in? Because without interleague play, obviously, you're not going to walk in a Yankee Stadium to pitch unless you're pitching in a World Series. What's what's that moment like? Well, I'll tell you, the 1949 was my first World Series. And when we we went into Yankee Stadium, uh, we're all in our early 20s, most of us. Uh, walking Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built, uh, they had just remodeled the two clubhouses, and the Yankees used to be on the third uh, third base side, but they that changed him, and uh, the visitors team was on the on the third base side. But let me tell you something. I think it was a, a deliberate. Uh, they would moved everything out of the old Yankee clubhouse, which became the visitors clubhouse, except two lockers. And when we went in the locker room, the two lockers that were still there was Ruth and Gehrig's. And I'll tell you what, that, that was like, they, they put that in there on purpose for a young team to walk in and see these two fab, fabulous players. I always thought they did that on purpose. Do, do you remember if you slept well? Is it Because it's not really normal to be 23 years old and pitching in a World Series and have it be against the Yankees. I mean, do you sort of... And again, it's so many years later. I, I can you conjure it up, or do you still sort of remember what the excitement was and and playing against the ghost of the greatness in that building and trying to do something for the borough of Brooklyn, which had always been sort of, if not a stepchild to Manhattan uh, or the Bronx or that whole. You know, New York was its own country. Uh, Brooklyn was its own country. I talked to my dad about it before he passed. That's a lot of. I don't know if it's a burden, but it but it's a big deal at that point for that borough. Well, that borough, about two million people, I think, was a very mixed uh, ethnic uh, groups of of uh, residents there, and I believe Mr. Ricky uh, finally waited long enough till the right thing came along to in, uh, attempt to integrate uh, baseball. Uh, the war was over, and Truman, the president, had just uh, he had just. Uh, integrated the uh, mil- in the military mm-hmm. he just de- deregulated de uh oh. yeah, desegregated desegregated thank you uh he had just desegregated the military and so i think mr ricky thought to himself i've always wanted to do this maybe this is the time and so that's i think was the kickoff for him to send his scouts out looking for the black player to be the first one they ended up being Jackie, and uh, but that that era was uh, the bonding was really strong on that team, and we never had a problem with uh, Jackie being a black player. Uh, he got booed a lot on the road. He got a lot of uh, hard stuff coming from the other dugouts, uh, and uh, and had he endured it. And uh, Mr. Ricky asked him, I said, "Look, you could you could win any fight on the field." You're, you're strong enough, you're fast enough, you're quick enough. Uh, if you're going to be a fight, I, I'm telling you, you're going to win it. But are you strong enough not to fight? And Mr. Ricky put that question to Jackie because if Jackie didn't feel like he could control himself, as the, uh, some of his teammates in the Negro League, so Jackie won't make it. He's too hot-tempered. But the bonding of him and Mr. Ricky, uh, incidentally, both of their mothers, Mr. Ricky and Jackie, raised their boys 
to be good Christian men. And there's a book out called 42 Faith, and it features this bonding of Mr. Ricky and Jackie to the point where Mr. Ricky said, uh, I want to read you something. And he read the parable of Turn the Other Cheek. And he said, Jackie, you must do this. Uh, you must tell me now you can do it. And uh, I know I know Jackie had to think a while. Uh, sure, Cropper's uh, little boy in uh, Cairo, Georgia, mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't have much chance in life. And uh, I know all that flashed through Jackie's head. Uh, but he finally said to Mr. Ricky, I can do it. I can do it. And there's no record anywhere written or spoken, uh, recorded, or anything where Jackie ever fought in a clubhouse, on the field, in a restaurant. Uh, there's no record that Jackie ever fought any place. And that's a testament to Mr. Ricky's uh, faith and his own faith that his mother put in him. So you might say that two mothers mm-hmm. had a lot to do with the integration of baseball. Yeah, and and look, it's really interesting because you know you can Hollywoodize that version of it, but when it comes from someone who was there, someone such as yourself, and someone who was actually a part of that, it makes the story not only true, but it makes it more impactful. Because here's the other thing: there had to be a moment where, look, not everybody was going to be okay with this, but if Jackie had gotten into a fight, it does sound like that team you would have been fighting the entirety of that team, which is probably. You know, the biggest thing you could say about a moment and what would happen if. It, it doesn't sound like anybody on that Brooklyn Dodger team was going to back down or not have his back. No, well, you're right. There was a solid uh, support of Jackie. Well, after all, he was winning games for us. Mm-hmm. He, he made us a, a team that was could beat anybody. And uh, But I'll tell you a, a part of a story that never gets told. Uh, it's there. It's in the history. But... It's, Mr. Ricky doesn't get enough credit for it. He called Bill Vec of the Cleveland Indians, and he said, the second player on my list is a player, an outfielder named Larry Doby. Would you take him on your roster so that both American League and National League can be integrated about the same time? Now, imagine what that would have done if Mr. Ricky hadn't have done that, because there would have been a uh, the N-word would have been related to the National League, and uh, the American League would still have been the White, White League. But Mr. Ricky was wise. He gave up a Hall of Fame player, Larry Doby, to ask Bill Vec to take him so that both teams could be integrated about the same time. And that's not never – they never give Mr. Ricky credit for that. But I'm telling you, that was a major move. I want to ask you about the games themselves and a couple of other things. And again, I do appreciate your time. The, the idea of not beating the Yankees a few times and the idea of certainly 1951, not really, you know, getting the shot to do that. Did you think, was there a moment where you weren't sure if it was going to happen in Brooklyn? You know, we never felt, uh, second class to the, to the Yankees. We always felt like, you know, player for player, we, we could play anybody. Mm-hmm. So there was never a moment when we felt like we were snake bit or uh, there was some kind of curse on the Dodgers. That never entered. Uh, every time we played the Yankees, of course, we played them in spring training every year. So we knew the players. We played against uh, all those superstars on the Yankees. So we weren't 
we weren't overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, the story about going in the clubhouse uh, when we were in 49, uh, that only lasted, uh, you know, we only won one game in that series. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but we didn't feel like we were snake bad. Every year playing the Yankees, uh, we felt like we had uh, strong pitching staff and uh, certainly a lot of run-making uh, home runs and so forth uh, on the offensive side. So, it, it, but when we finally did win it in 55, he was on the Yankees' turf. He was in Yankee Stadium when Padres pitched a two-nothing two shutout. And we finally got the victory for, I think, the players felt as much emotion for the fans who had waited so many years to finally get a championship. I think we felt like that. Roger Craig was a rookie on that team. And we went up the runway into the clubhouse, and uh, Roger said uh, he saw something that I didn't know anybody else saw. But I saw tears in the eyes of Jackie and Pee Wee and, and even myself. The emotion was so high, and it was such a quiet, almost a reverent moment or two before the champagne began to pop. And it was a feeling that we finally, finally presented this championship to the, the wonderful fans in Brooklyn. And so... I never realized anybody saw that. Roger Craig said, I saw tears in the eyes of all you guys. Where did you end up that night, the night that you went at World oh, Series? Oh, the Bossard Hotel was where where the party was. And uh, uh, it, it went on all night long. And uh, the dancing in the bands and the street, the people were dancing in the street. And uh, we had an agent in those days. He wasn't an agent like you think today. Frank Scott was an agent that helped get uh, guys on TV, and some some of them you get paid, most of them you didn't get paid. Uh, the club had a, a agreement in your contract; you'd appear in so many things. Well, they called from the t they called me. I was a player rep uh, on the diary. They called me uh, in the middle of the night, and they said, uh, "We want you and Duke Snyder to be sure." And get Padres on the t Today Show tomorrow morning. And of course, the party was going on all night, and Johnny had a few uh, a few glasses of champagne. And, you know, so they said we want you on the show, and we want Snyder on the show. But the main thing, we want you two to bring Padres. Be sure he gets there. So we did. Duke and I made the Today Show with Padres and. Johnny who was a very modest kid. He he was only in his second year with us, and uh, he'd won two games in the series. I think he won the third game and the seventh game. So he was a true hero. And so uh, Johnny was never a braggart, but he was still buzzed up enough. We got on the <laughs> Today Show, and Padre says, bring him on again. I'll beat him again today. <laughs> so he was out of character. Yeah. And... and and then, unfortunately, you know, listen, thank God, after 51 and the other World Series, 55 happens. But, it's, boy, it's not much after that when you find out the, the, the Dodgers are going to be moving. Well, even though I was player rep, I wasn't in on much of the inside uh, negotiating and Mr. Uh, O'Malley was doing with the City Fathers mm -hmm. uh, in New York. But um, so we... We never had a meeting that I ever remember in the clubhouse where Mr. O'Malley came in and gave us kind of the lowdown. But we we knew what everybody else knew reading the paper. 
it was obvious that Mr. Ricky, Mr. O'Malley was trying to stay in Brooklyn. And uh, we even played some games in uh, Roosevelt Stadium in Staten Island uh, as a, a kind of, a, I thought it was a kind of a ploy mm -hmm. uh, that Mr. Rick, Mr. O'Malley was using, uh, negotiating with uh, Robert Moses in uh, the, the city of New York. But uh, honestly, uh, the, the Brooklyn fans didn't appreciate O'Malley because he was in charge of the team. He owned the team, and they always related that he was the dirty bird that, uh, mm -hmm. that broke the the wonderful relationship we had in, in Brooklyn with the fans. But honestly, he was only a victim uh, because there was nobody else they could figure to blame. But, but uh, you, you told me in the past where you were on the day they started to tear down Ebbets Field. I was there. I was there with two other former teammates, Ralph Branca, who lived near, he lived in New York, and Campanella who was there in his wheelchair. And we were there when they had the ceremony uh, on the field and the, the big wrecking ball had been painted like a big baseball. And uh, so when the moment came to drop the wrecking ball, they dropped it on the visitor's dugout. Now, let me tell you, as, as, much, as much competition as we had with guys in that other dugout, but when they dropped that ball on the visitor's dugout, it was it was all I could take. I left right away, so I didn't see any more of the demolition. But uh, Campy was there, and and Ralph Branca. Uh, so we saw the last of Evans Field. Mm -hmm. Let me just do this quickly. Ralph Branca, he carried himself with a grace after 1951. I know he was a religious man, a spiritual man. Uh, how much respect do you have for him? Because look, when we found out about the possibility of sign stealing or, or sign stealing going on. Um, there had been whispers of that, I guess, for an extended period of time. But but Ralph, had, he, he held his head high. You know, it's, you know, you're not going to well, win every time. Um, but a lot of guys have bellyached about a lot less. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, the, the, in the polo grounds, the players came from two stair steps that came down from a building which housed both the opponents and the, and the Giants. But on the Giants side of that uh, center field uh, clubhouse, there was always a window up about six or eight inches, and it was dark behind it. And we said from the bench, we could look right out there, and we said, those dirty birds, I bet they're stealing signs. But we never had anybody, like we never complained to the umpires or anything, so nobody ever checked it out. But the fact came out later uh, that the, there was a buzzer system set up, and they were stealing signs, and a guy on the bench in right center field was a polo grounds uh, bullpen. And a guy would sit uh, with a white towel on his lap. And when he didn't pick it up, it was a fastball. And when he picked it up, wiped his hands or something, uh, it was uh, mm. they, they caught the sign. It was either slider or curveball. So the last half of the season, the Giants had this fantastic run. And Thompson hit the home run, was uh, shot her around the world. 
Uh, they always ask him, did you take the sign? Well, I could have, he said. But did you? Well, it was always there for me to take if I wanted it. Well, did you take it? He never would He never mm-hmm. would say yes, he took it. A fellow Scotsman, by the way. <laughs> True. Yeah. But anyway, he had to shot her around the world. Uh, but the story behind that, real quick, is I was in the bullpen with Branca, and when they called and asked, were we ready, uh, the coach said, they're both ready. Uh, Erskine's bouncing his curveball. So he said, let me have Branca. So when people have asked me over the years, Carl, what was your best pitch uh, in your 12 seasons in the big leagues? And I said it was the curveball I bounced in the bullpen. <laughs> so tongue-in-cheek. But, yeah. uh, but, but, but Ralph carried himself. He didn't complain. Oh, he didn't. Ralph, Ralph handled it beautifully. Ralph, Ralph never complained. He never said, you know, why me? He never. But he handled it. And in the end, after some time had passed, and he got all the booze and the hate mail and uh, whatever from uh, from fans, uh, it finally blended itself as a baseball history, a piece, a major piece of New York baseball history. And in fact, I think the writers in New York voted it the last century was the greatest sport event of the last century. And so Ralph and uh, Bobby Thompson together blended as a piece of history mm-hmm. more than a hero and, right. a, and a goat. So uh, that was all because of Branca's class and how he handled it, never complained, and so forth. Right? I agree. Um, when you found out about Roy Campanella's accident, because, by the way, here's the other thing that I've – it's been said about you, a gentleman, class personified, nobody's got a bad word. Roy Campanella, he had a big laugh. Um, I had, Who the heck was I talking to the other day? Oh, Jim Gentile um, told me, uh, you know, how, how just big Roy Campanella was in personality and a big laugh and certainly a great player and the right guy to be behind the plate for all of those big games and big moments. When you found out about his accident, can I, can I ask what, what unfortunately went through your mind? Well, of course, we did find out about it in the winter of 58, uh, I believe it was. Um, Roy, Roy was uh, the, the joy, on if you can use that word, in a baseball clubhouse. He brought joy. It was more than fun or happiness, or but he brought the purity of what the game meant to him. And he had come up the tough way uh, out of poverty in Philadelphia. He played all the winter leagues and all that. Finally, the shot to get in the major leagues. Roy, even though he was paralyzed from his neck down, and he sat in a wheelchair for 33 years, he never said, why me, or I got a bad break. But when you try to say something sympathetic to Roy, he would change the subject. He'd say, well, how are you doing? What's happening in your life? And he wouldn't. I took a friend of mine to see him at the hospital in New York. And when we left, he said, I thought we were supposed to cheer him up. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't. He would not taint his career because of that uh, terrible accident and uh, being paralyzed. He would not. And Tommy Lasorda did a beautiful thing. He said to Roy after he moved to California, he said, I want you to coach my catchers. And Roy said, I can't. What can I do? I can't coach. He said, do you know anything about catching? And he said, yeah, I know a little bit. Well, you're going to teach my catchers. Now, that was Mike Sosha and Mm Jaeger and some of the 
really solid catchers that the Dodgers had, Campy actually made a contribution uh, in their careers. And so he had a wonderful spirit. And uh, he also was a Bible man. He, he read the Bible. He, under, he, he was a faith-based uh, player. And, uh, and I was asked to write something for his uh, 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 caption for one of his uh, books in uh, the golf tournament that he had uh, for a benefit in California. And uh, I thought, what can I put about Colroy? And I said, well, you know what? I'm a man of faith myself. So in that caption, I put, where the human spirit meets the Holy Spirit. And that was the caption. And I think that was the most appropriate thing I ever thought in my head, uh, some kind of a deep subject on faith. But that was Roy. He, his Holy Spirit was in him, and his human spirit was like a giant. Let me finish up by just giving you a few names, and if you don't mind, tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You saw Sandy Koufax before he could throw a strike. Then you right. were out in California when Sandy Koufax all of a sudden became the best pitcher in the world. Um, when you hear Sandy's name, what do you think of? Well, he could pitch one pitch. He could be a one-pitch pitcher. His fastball moved so much, hitters would swing, and then he'd look at their bat like, <laughs> what's wrong with his bat? <laughs> Don Drysdale? Well, Big Don was a, he never was a rookie. He was a quality pitcher his first year in the big leagues. You, you had a chance to play in spring training and in the 49 World Series against Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, I faced Joe DiMaggio one time. Uh, I, they called me in the bullpen, and I didn't realize who was on deck. But taking my warm-up pitches, I saw it was Joe D. Well, he had a high fly in the infield. Uh, about a 400-foot drive, 200 up and down. <laughs> but I got him out. Yeah, and that's a story forever, by the way. You get Joe DiMaggio out. And it's perfect that you faced him one time, 0 for 1. Yeah, 0 for 1 in the 49 series. Mickey Mantle. 49. Yeah. Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle. Hard swinger. Uh, hated my curveball. He was not a fan of you trying to trying to get him with that. I faced Mal in four different World mm-hmm. Series, and I, I struck him out several times. But uh, but one day he had two strikes on him in the Yankee Stadium, and he laid down a bunt. And I thought, what dumbhead! What he doesn't even know the count. Bunt with two strikes <laughs> when he could hit the ball out of the, uh, over the moon. And so I was in the uh, Yankee clubhouse a couple of years after that at an old timers event. And I said, how smart a player was Mantle? Oh, he was a heads-up player. I said, well, he, he bunted with two strikes. He didn't even know the count. They all started laughing, the, the Yankee players. They all started laughing. They said, oh, yeah, he knew, he knew the count. He told us before he went up to hit, if that little so-and-so gets two strikes on me, I know what he's going to throw me, that nasty curveball. I'm going to bunt the son of a buck. I can't hit it. <laughs> So I said that was the highest compliment my curveball ever No got. doubt. All right, let's finish with this. Um, and I asked, I think Phil Rizzuto might have been the first person I asked about this a number of years ago. Um, we talked about you being the last link. And by the way, 93 years old, you sound fantastic. Uh, I hope you're in, in as good as health as you sound like you are right now. Do you ever, because the gentleman that you played with and played against, really for the most part are not here. Have you ever dreamt about being a young player again? Have you ever had dreams where 
you're back playing or there there's that sense of at least playing and being young again has that ever happened to you i'll tell you what in all honesty i don't have to be asleep to dream about those days and dream about the players the class people they were uh, the the kind of uh, camaraderie we had the team that thought we can't Nobody can beat us. The best team I ever played on was 53, and we didn't win the World Series that year. But the, if you look at the stats of the 53 team, they were fantastic. But to win one for the fans in Brooklyn, I think it was more satisfying to show our finally our fans in Brooklyn, you've got the championship. Yes, there's the Yankees. Yes, there's the Giants. But there's nobody like the Brooklyn Dodgers. And and is and is that enough without it having to be asleep? You can feel that. I mean, if you just think about, I don't even know. If over the course of this conversation, does it take you back a little bit? Do you feel like you're actually back there as you talk about some of these men? It's always that feeling. I'll tell you what. I'm a skinny kid from a little town in Indiana, and to have me picked out from that spot, placed in this fantastic lineup in Brooklyn, and to be friends and close associates with with all these great names, uh, it's it's still a fantasy to me. It's not it's not like it's really real, but I go over these games over and over in my head, and my wife says, "How do you remember all that?" <laughs> It's burned in there. It's never going to go away. <laughs> I might forget the grocery list. But I'm never going to forget what it was like playing at Evans Field. Well, sir, I must tell you, as a as a son of a father, Gil Hodges was his favorite player, who dated my mom at Ebbets Field. I know what 1955 meant to him. He was a 20-year-old at that point, so he had sort of gone through the losing the World Series. And I know there were a lot of relatives that I met when I was a younger person who were still living in Brooklyn. And, and that legacy of that team, Dem Bums and the Symphony and everything else that came with it, uh, it will never be forgotten. And there's been more words written about baseball than every other sport combined. It's been verified. Just it's not even close. But stories like this, i got to tell you, this has been as pleasant an experience as I've had in 25 years uh, in terms of talking to people who played every game. Hall of Famers here, guys whose names you didn't know. I, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed this. Think of all those headlines and clippings and rings and all the rest of it. The one thing that stands out to me is how Jackie Robinson, what he did, how he integrated the game, how it had impact across the country in every uh, in every level of business, uh, uh, government. Uh, Jackie's impact uh, was never realized until years passed looking back. Now, there's something very symbolic about Jackie being in the Hall of Fame. All the plaques are the same color, and that's very symbolic of what baseball actually did to change the history and the culture of the United States. Perfect. Mr. Erskine, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're still, thank goodness, at 93, a busy man. Uh, I appreciate you taking this much time out. I hope you and your wife have a great rest of the evening and, and, again, thoroughly enjoyed this. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. I have a lot of family in Albany, Georgia, so I'm in, I'm in the state a lot these days. Well, if there's ever a time when uh, I can get you lunch, uh, I promise this is my number, and I, I would love to do it and then some. Well, you're very kind, and I appreciate talking with you. All right, Mr. Erskine. Thanks very much. Have a great night. Thank you. Goodbye.
Thank you. I was privileged to play with a lot of Hall of Famers. Our captain was Pee Wee Reese, a Hall of Famer. My catcher for over 1,500 innings, probably. I pitched to Roy Campanella, Hall of Famer. My roommate was Duke Snyder, a great center fielder, Hall of Famer. I'm actually in the Hall of Fame by association. <laughs> and uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green and the people played their crazy game with a joy I'd never seen and the air was such a wonder from the hot dogs and the beer Yes, there used to be a ballpark right here. In L.A., I didn't pitch much in L.A. It was right at the end of my career. Opening day, I got to pitch and a few other times, but then I had to retire with arm trouble. But when I go to L.A., believe me, the fans there treat me like I played my whole career in L.A., and that's a great feeling. Yes, there used to be a ballpark. Right here.